Hello, I'm Jeannie Phillips and welcome back to Vermont Ed Reads. We're kicking off our second season of the podcast with none other than the author, professor, associate dean, and Vermont education legend, Dr. Penny Bishop. We'll talk Vermont PLPs, the power of a compelling school example in changing classroom practices, and how to steal all the examples from Penny's new book with the Terran Institute. But before we get to the episode, I just wanted to say thank you to everyone who's listened to us so far, everyone who's sent us messages and tweets of support and love. We love you right back. And we're so excited that you want to talk books by Vermont educators, for Vermont educators, and you know the rest. It's Vermont Ed Reads time. Welcome back. Let's chat. Today I'm with Penny Bishop, and we'll be talking about Personalized Learning in the Middle Grades, a guide for classroom teachers and school leaders by Penny Bishop, John Downs, and Katie Farber. Thank you for joining me, Penny. My pleasure. Tell me a little bit about who you are and what you do. Well, uh, I am a professor and an associate dean at UVM at the University of Vermont and in the College of Education and Social Services, and I'm also founding director of the Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education. Thank you. I'm so delighted to talk to you about this book, and I'm going to start with a softball. What book's on your bedside table right now? Well, there are probably 12, actually, and there's a bit of a toppling going on at the moment, but the one that I'm reading is, um, is by Annie Prue, and it's Barkskins. I don't know if you've read it or not, but it's an amazing tale of sort of over 300 years, how immigrants came to New France and sort of the landscape and how landscape and people change over time. I loved that book. Did you? It's really interesting because it follows both our, you know, it's a, it's got a message about climate change. Absolutely. It also really honors the people who were here before us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm really enjoying it. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad. I'll look forward to talking to you about it when you're done. Um, so let's talk about this book, Personalized Learning in the Middle Grades. Um, you really start the book, you and John and Katie, by defining personalized learning. And I wondered if you could put your definition in a nutshell for us. Mm. Happy to. So I think um, the foundation, for me anyway, and the foundation for the book, is believing in the capacity of youth to do great things. And in order to do those great things, we need to uh, enable them, invite them to have more say, more ownership, more agency in what they do and how they learn. Uh, the way that we have conceived of personalization in the book is to think about it in terms of three pillars. The first uh, pillar is knowing students well, and we use a personalized learning plan as a way, as, a, as one mechanism, one way to do that, to get to know students well. And then using what we know about students, that first pillar leads to the second, which is flexible pathways or creating authentic opportunities for learning. And the third would be uh, proficiency-based assessments, so valuing what students learn. Um, using those three things in conjunction is essentially what we talk about in the book. Yeah. What I noticed when I was reading through, especially that first portion where you're defining it so well, is that you take Vermont's Act 77 and 
put it in context and into practice in a way that sort of makes it visible for people. You take this abstract concept and really make it visible. Yeah, I feel really fortunate to be working in a state where we have Act 77 because I think it's given educators license to do a lot of developmentally and culturally responsive work, um, the kinds of work that teachers um, know is right, um, and now we have permission to do it. So it's a very exciting time. And one of the tools you use in the book to really um, take this, this framework, um, the three pillars framework and the legislative framework, and um, make it visible, make it practical, is vignettes. Um, you share stories of personalized learning and action throughout the book. And I wanted to just ask where these stories come from, because mm. they're so compelling. Thanks, yeah. Um, well, the vignettes that begin the chapters are uh, compilations. So they are not stories of one specific uh, learner, um, but rather they are uh, representations of a number of learners we've interacted with um, across many of our partner schools and across Vermont. Um, Katie Farber, one of, the, uh, one of my co-authors, uh, has an amazing ability to bring those stories together, and so she it was the primary author of most of those. Um, but they were the result of sort of stories that we were bringing from a variety of schools and students. The personalization and action sort of vignettes that are within chapters, however, are specific to schools and to students and families and educators. And so in those instances, those are named. Wonderful. Could you share one of the sort of chapter lead vignettes that you think is especially compelling? I'm going to re-ask that question. Um, Penny, would you mind sharing one of the um, um, chapter beginning vignettes um, with us, one of your favorites? I'd be happy to. I think I'll read from the very first one, which tells the story of Miles. Miles pulls up the hood of his sweatshirt in the dark morning and hoists his backpack onto his shoulder. The cool late fall air nips his face as he walks to the end of his driveway on the dirt road where he lives. He thinks about the kids in his sixth grade inquiry group with whom he texted last night. They're so close to completing their big project to establish a nature trail on school grounds, and they're excited and nervous about presenting their proposal to the school board. He's a little stunned that they'll be assessed on their presentation rather than taking a test or writing a report. He remembers that he still has a few things to finish on the slide deck, but he's feeling good about the argument he's written, the budget tables and cost projections they've developed, and their compliance with trail safety and accessibility standards. The bus lumbers along the icy roads, rattling as it climbs the hill to where he stands and gasps puffs of air as it stops. As Miles climbs the stairs, he wonders if his friends will be sitting together already and if there will be room for him. While Miles has a sleepy and uneventful bus ride, his advisory teacher, Ms. Phillips, is already at school preparing for the day. She sips her quickly cooling coffee as she reads her students' latest entries in their personalized learning plans. She tries to spot patterns in their personal communication goals so she can group them for peer practice and critique as they prepare for their upcoming project presentations. In 20 minutes, she needs to be standing by the door and even a quick glance at the PLPs usually leaves her ready to greet her students with something specific to say about each one. Miles disembarks from the bus, is greeted cheerfully by the school principal, and walks through the door down the hallway toward his advisory period. On his way, he sees the colorful self-portraits created in art class on the walls. His face, in an art deco style with cartoon eyes, stares back at him. 
one of only a handful of students of color in his class. He liked being able to choose a different medium for his self-portrait than many of his friends, thanks to the choices available in his teacher's art studio. He keeps walking, thinking that his portrait might be a good thing to upload to his digital PLP. After all, the PLP is his own personal website, his story. At the door, Ms. Phillips, now up from her desk, greets him. Hey, Miles, how's it going? How'd the soccer, go, uh, soccer game go last weekend? I know that was a tough team you were facing. We lost. They played really rough, Miles says. Oh, sorry to hear that, bud, she says. He nods, hangs up his pack, and says hello to his friends who are hanging out in a group by the fish tank. Miles walks to his desk and sees the choices on the board. Check the class blog, upload identity work to PLP, meet with a PLP partner, work on a project of interest, read a book, or check in with a teacher. Miles already has made plans to meet with Maria, the fifth grader who's his PLP partner this morning. Miles heads to his table and smiles as he greets Maria, who's already seated. As the more experienced PLP partner, Miles is helping Maria prepare for the student-led conference she'll hold with her family later this month. This morning, he plans to walk her through a few of the items in his own PLP to show her one way she could do it. He snaps open his netbooks and sees the last window still open. His PLP stares back. There's his name. He's happier with the look of the webpage since he changed its overall appearance, including the font and colors. He clicks on his identity page and smiles. There I am, he thinks. His favorite PLP entry is the video at the top of his identity page. In it, each member of his advisory holds up a sign that states something about them that most people don't know. This had been his friend Emma's idea, and it was created by a team of kids who are into film and video. Each sign tells a different story. Miles waits for his to go by. It reads, I know three languages. He's pretty proud of that. Miles then scrolls through his current goals, talking to Maria about each, and informally assessing them as he does. Playing forward in soccer, check. Expanding the genres of books he reads this year, slow but steady progress on that one. And learning to write computer code, still working on figuring that one out. He scrolls through some recent PLP entries. He points out a learning profile he completed in science class that explains how he prefers active, hands-on learning. He clicks into a coat of arms he drew in literacy block, featuring the most important people in his life, a special place, and his favorite hobby. He shows Maria a photo of work on the Lego robotics team that he hopes will help him toward his coding goal. And he sees the picture he uploaded last night of himself playing soccer at the clinic he attended this summer, along with an accompanying reflection on teamwork skills that he recorded in VoiceThread. He plays that for Maria as an example since he knows she has a hard time with writing but has plenty to say. She's inspired by this idea sees the classroom's homemade podcasting booth is available and retreats to try out audio reflection for herself. I think Miles' story goes on, doesn't it? It does go on. It's a long one. <laughs> I love it, though, because it uh, illuminates all of the things you mentioned in your definition of personalized learning. So in that short vignette, I saw student agency, right? I saw how Miles had agency over his own learning. I heard about his flexible pathways, um, and I saw instances of authentic assessment where he was going to give a presentation to the school board. And so all of those things, those terms, those jargony terms we throw around, um, had meaning in that vignette, became really crystal clear to me mm -hmm. about how they could look in a classroom. I'm glad you enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun, a lot of fun to put together, and Miles is just one of a bunch of, uh, of 
composites in the book that I think um, bring to life the great things that young people are capable of. So, yeah, I always remember Clara <laughs> and her science work, her work in the greenhouse. Right, <laughs> she always stands out to me. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that, Penny. Um, and the other thing that that really brings up for me is um, uh, you really address it on page thirty-eight. Um, the way that in using this vignette, these vignettes, you're able to unpack the shifting roles of both students and teachers in a personalized learning environment. And these vignettes also, sort of you see Ms. Phillips' role and you see Miles' role um, and the other students, sort of in the way they're, it's different than we think of education from our childhoods, from our own childhoods. <laughs> It's quite different, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. You know, um, it's interesting. I was just doing some writing this morning about um, this notion that personalized learning may render teachers obsolete. <laughs> um, that if you're looking at things that are highly digital and um, in that sort of version of pace-based personalization that so many people equate personalized learning with, um, that there's been this backlash around people fighting back against summit learning and this idea that we don't have access to teachers and kids are teaching themselves. And what we've found, certainly what's represented in the book and what we've also found in our research, is that um, teachers are needed more than ever, that so much of this work is about relationship and so much of it is about helping students find um, those pathways, scouting out ahead of them for uh, resources if they're human or, or um, digital or otherwise. Uh, and so yes, we do talk in the book about um, the fact that when you position students or help them position themselves as drivers of their own learning, it, it necessarily means new roles for teachers as well. And so um, we have conceived of uh, several different roles for teachers in personalized learning environments. Some of them are similar to roles that teachers already uh, um, embodied daily, um, but others are a little bit more unique. So for example, when we talk about teacher as um, scout, we really are talking about if we're in a personalized learning setting where students are pursuing, you know, say 15, 20 different interests in the classroom, how do you stay ahead of students? How do you equip them with uh, enough community mentors? How do you help them find access to um, the types of curriculum they need. It's a very different thing than identifying leveled text sets, for example, right? Um, similarly, we've identified scaffold or um, the different types of assessment that, that teachers are engaged in, um, the need for even more formative and regular assessment than we've done in the past, um, the, the, the importance of building community, uh, and, and so on. So yeah, there are a number of ways that we're rethinking teacher roles, uh, as well as some, some teacher dispositions, as, you know, sort of to have a greater uh, capacity for um, tolerating a little bit of chaos, for example, not always having things planned out ahead of time, not having one's ducks in a row. That's, that's not always super comfortable for everyone. Right. I think um, as a former school librarian, and always school librarian, I think that role of scout feels really comfortable to me because a lot of times my role with students, K to 12, was to say, well, I don't know the answer to that, but let's find out together, right? Like, let's sit down and figure this out together. And in a way, the scout is sort of, um, I love that role because you're thinking about where each student is heading or small groups of students are heading and you're sort of forecasting ahead. What are they gonna need? What resources? And the other thing I love about it is that you don't have to know everything. You just have to know to get them what they need to know. 
And so there's something really interesting to me about that role. And that's come out a lot in the, in the research that we've done on teacher roles and dispositions. It's really been about being comfortable with not knowing and being upfront about not knowing. And that's, again, not in everyone's nature to feel comfortable with that, but it is. it does seem in, increasingly important to be able to be upfront with kids about it and to, to say, hey, we're gonna learn this together. And in fact, I might be learning from you. That's a very powerful shift um, and it's an exciting one. Yeah, there's reciprocity in that, right? That um, together, I'm teaching you, you're teaching me, we're learning together. Absolutely. And kids love that. They really do. <laughs> yes. Do you want to talk about the um, sort of parallel shifts in student roles that go along with these parallel these shifts in teacher roles? Well, I think they they really do um, revolve around. Actually, I'm going to open up to the page that this is on, mm -hmm. um, which is thirty. I think it's thirty-eight. Yes. Yeah. Thanks. It's interesting because on, on page 38 we have a diagram that sort of shows how those things interact um, between the teacher and the learner. So if you think about the student um, as now sort of the driver of, of their education, um, of their learning, they need to now be doing a number of things they weren't doing before, um, or they may have been doing in, in a number of classrooms. So I don't want to simply dismiss the great things that have been happening in, in Vermont classrooms for a really long time because we very fortunate to be in this state filled with great educators. Um, but some of the distinctions that we're seeing are, um, for example, even this idea of learning at one's own pace, right? So needing to um, be conscious of, as a learner, what, one, what, what my pace is, how I manage that pace, how I set goals, how I project manage. Um, all of those things are more important in a self-directed kind of personalized learning environment than they have been in a more teacher-directed one. So those are pieces. Um, actually uh, keeping up with one's learner profile, so thinking about what's important for me to know, how do I change over time, how does that change what my goals are, uh, monitoring that, using data is another thing, so helping students have access to their own data and thinking about that data strategically and what it means for their learning and how they can move forward. Um, those are all um, relatively new roles for a lot of, a lot of learning environments anyway. Um, yeah, those are a few. What's occurring to me as I hear you talk about this, and as I read the book too, is often in education we think about various initiatives, right? And we're always like talking about initiative fatigue and how another thing we have to do. And one of the beautiful things about this book is that um, it weaves together these things as a whole and shows you what the big picture looks like, where these things aren't separate things, but things, um, proficiency, and thinking about proficiency, flexible pathways, and PLPs in particular, and how those weave together to form a whole learning experience. But I'm also thinking about, um, with these roles, how it layers in really deeply and meaningfully um, what we think of as the transferable skills, right? Self-direction and communication um, being two that feel really important to this work. Um, metacognition and reflection, like if you're thinking about who am I now, what's it mean for me to be a learner, those are deeply woven in. And so it's not about, um, and even knowing students well means understanding trauma-informed practice, right? And so it's not about separate initiatives, but how do we create a cohesive whole to create the educational system our learners deserve? 
I really wish you'd written the conclusion. <laughs> because I think that is, uh, that's, that's exactly it. It's really about thinking about this work as a cohesive whole. And I think one thing that we've learned over time since 2013 when Act 77 um, was passed is that we really need to implement it as a whole. That if you take any one piece of this, um, if you take the PLP, for example, we learned we learned the hard way about the PLP, and we talked a little bit about that in the book. That you know, a lot of schools started with PLPs, which seemed like it made really good sense. It was the first um, deadline, if you will, that came through the legislature. Well, all the students have to have PLPs by a certain date, and so we thought, okay, yeah, PLPs, goals, let's do it. Um, but in fact, if you don't have uh, flexible pathways, meaningful ways and engaging ways for students to achieve those goals, and then you don't honor that learning in, in ways that count, um, there's, no, there's no increased engagement, there's no increased learning. Um, so it really is, um, it is the whole package. It is, uh, it is not a curriculum, it's not a program, it really is about teaching and learning writ large. And in many schools that um, I'm familiar with, PLPs have become a dirty word with both students and teachers because they were implemented without the other two pillars. Absolutely. In fact, we've seen schools um, rename or relabel uh, PLPs as something entirely different just to, to sort of rebrand things. Um, right. Yeah. And so that takes me um, to page 52, a page I've uh, bookmarked because I plan on using it with some schools as we rethink PLPs. And um, it's something that I really uh, also appreciate about this book, which is the way um, that you've thought about not just the what, but the why. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about how you um, reframed PLPs in terms of their purpose for each stakeholder? Sure, I'd love to. I, I think um, one of the things that is essential to this work is, is understanding why we do it, because you're right, uh, we place so many heavy expectations on educators that if we don't have clear a clear sense of why if we don't have a clear sense of what we're trying to accomplish we really do fall into initiative fatigue it's so easy to see this as one more thing uh, coming down the pike right um, so what we've done in, in this chapter in particular is to focus on purpose and into and to invite readers to identify their own purposes for the PLP and for adopting personalization well beyond the idea that uh, I live in Vermont and it's mandated here or I live in one of the 39 states where we're moving in this direction, right? It's, it's what is your central purpose? What are you trying to, to uh, accomplish with this? And for what stakeholders? So we talk about uh, in this chapter a little bit about what um, possible purposes um, one might adopt it for, for students, for teachers, for families, and then for invested others. So for, t for students, for example, um, some of the educators we work with um, identify things like helping students explore their identities in a safe space. Um, we know that that's an important work. We ground this book in the middle grades and in early adolescence in particular, although I do think that a lot of it um, is pertinent well beyond uh, the 10 to 15 year old. Um, but we do know that in particular, early adolescents are all about identity development and uh, it's a great space for that. Other, other purposes include ensuring that students are, are well known as individuals or providing them with uh, greater control over their own learning. Um, for teachers, they serve a number of purposes, including um, giving them uh, 
uh, a way to manage all those idiosyncratic pathways, right? All those flexible pathways that students are now pursuing. How are we documenting those? How are we keeping track of them? Also assessing uh, student growth. How do we do that in a meaningful way? Um, for families, we've found that they are really powerful, particularly when coupled with student-led conferences, because they convey um, both that adolescent identity, but also then growth, growth over time, best work, what, what really powerful portfolios can do um, in a way that is even more driven by the student, uh, and can help families um, be even more connected to adolescents at a time when adolescents are starting to pull away. Uh, so that's an exciting opportunity for families maybe to learn a little bit more about, uh, about, their own, about their own child. We included this other category called invested others because as, as learning becomes more personalized and as we do find teachers acting as scouts and engaging community more um, in mentoring young people, um, we find that that category is broader and broader. That, that, we, um, that it really does take a village, right? And so um, invested others may be community members who are mentoring in the school or uh, allowing a job shadow or um, simply being an online support in some way. Um, community could be um, quite um, broadly defined, right? So it could be folks who are you know, across the globe or it could be people in one's own, one's own town. Purposes for them might be to, to discover common ground for collaboration with students, um, as well as to convey a sense of respect for the um, value in the community and the knowledge in the community. It also helps to, for all of us to expand notions of where learning happens. Um, and I think across all of those stakeholders, um, a central purpose is also to see adolescence through an appreciative lens, which we so often adopt a deficit lens. So that's a big one for me. Oh gosh, I have so much to say right now. Um, there are two directions I wanna take this. I'm gonna start, start by thinking about how I love this invested others category because it um, creates avenues for authenticity in the student work. And um, sort of one of my passions is creating work that's real for kids. And so I'm thinking a lot about, um, well, right now I'm thinking about the kids at Edmonds who did some social justice work. And um, there are a couple girls who really focused on the pink tax. And they have connected with, le with the legislature in really powerful ways with lawmakers. And so thinking about what a powerful learning experience that is for them and also how grateful I am to them as a woman in this state for getting this important message out and making change happen. And so thinking about how this kind of PLP um, leverages authenticity and meaningful work for kids. And I think that's right where the engagement resides, right? It's, it's in that meaningful work, right? On matters of personal and social significance, that that's the engagement right there. That's what makes all the difference. Right, and that's the learning you remember. Those are the powerful moments that really stick mm -hmm. with you. Absolutely. And then the other side of this, I've been thinking a lot about how we are often trying to shift practice, classroom practice, school practice, teacher practice, and student practice without shifting belief. And I think that um, like we're always, and I think that's where initiative fatigue comes in too. Like do this new thing, um, administer this test, right? But there's no why behind it. And so I also love that this asks us to think about belief. Um, what do we really believe about um, teaching and learning 
And, and how does that belief shift into this PLP to make it meaningful? Mm -hmm. And what do we believe about the purpose of schools? Right? Yeah. yeah. Yes. So I, I just really appreciate the thought that goes into um, both sides of that. Mm -hmm. the, um, why are we doing this anyway? Mm -hmm. Like, let's spend some time on that so that the practice makes sense and we invest ourselves in it because it has something to back it up. Mm -hmm. So I agree. I props agree. for that yeah, to you guys. Thanks. Thank you. Um, so what's your hope for how Vermont, I can already see like the countless ways I'm going to use this book, but what's your hope for how Vermont educators are going to use this book? Well, I think first and foremost, I hope that they see the great uh, capacity in youth. You know what I mentioned earlier, that, that students are capable of so much. And I think the pink tax work is a great example of that, right? That our youth are capable of real work um, with real outcomes powerful work. And there are so many examples of that in the book, um, not just from the composites, but from actual teachers and, and students working together um, in really authentic ways. And so I hope, if nothing else, it's inspirational uh, in that regard, because it really is the product of so many students and, and educators working, working together and working really, really hard. Um, I think also uh, I hope that it may give them some clear strategies. We try to make it as useful as possible. Um, Teachers are busy, and it's definitely written for the teacher audience, so we try to make it accessible and um, inspirational, and uh, each chapter provides both personalization and practice, which gives little examples of what it's looking like, but also some ideas that people could even just steal, put into practice the next day. So I'm hopeful that it's useful in that way um, as well. And um, I think that I'm hoping that it will serve as a conversation starter because it's um, it was just our best thinking at that time and uh, it's you know it's been out for a few months and certainly it's been done for probably a year so it takes a while for it to come out and so now we we're already into a, an, another place in terms of how we are imagining what what the potential can be and so I'm hoping that teachers will and students will help us move it forward so a conversation starter I totally see the practical strategies and the ones, the two chapters that really hit home for me in terms of the, the like, oh, I could take this and run with it are the laying the groundwork for personalized learning chapter about sort of building that community. And that's a lot about um, sort of teaching the skills that students need in order to be agents of their own learning, to be drivers of their own learning. And then the, I just love the launching PLPs with the learner profile. You have such rich examples um, from excellent Vermont educators around the state and what they're doing in practice in that chapter. Well, it's funny that you, that you mentioned those two because um, for me, yes, the chapter three that sort of sets up some infrastructure is, I think, a, um, a helpful one. And then the, um, the laying the groundwork piece. So often we expect students to um, know how to be self-directed and we expect our classroom culture to support it without ever really attending to it. So really thinking about sort of what is the executive functioning, you know, how do, how do we interact as a community, all of those pieces really need to be in place to see it done well and to see and, and to help students be successful. And, um, and so I think if we don't attend to those things, we, we risk setting them up for failure as well as ourselves. So I think those pieces are really important. And then I, I love that you brought up the, um, the examples that are about um, 
knowing students well, because one of my favorites there, actually, there are so many great ones, but Lori Lisai and Joseph Murphy from Lamoille uh, have, Lamoille Union Middle, have these um, incre this incredible set of activities called the Geography of Self. And uh, I just, I just love so many of the things. One of them is an autobiographical map, and I just love the idea of being cartographers of one's own life. Like, there's so many rich examples like that. That's just one small one, but um, but I just found them so engaging. And if I were in the classroom, that's those are the those are a number of the ones that I'd want to steal right away. <laughs> uh, I noticed too in the I love those geography of self. I, I love the iceberg activity mm -hmm. um, that's in another. Um, that happens at Tuttle, mm -hmm. and there are so many great examples in there. And then another thing that I noticed that I just, I remember seeing it on the wall when I visited there is um, at Williston, they use those great, um, they use these great handouts mm. for executive functioning mm -hmm. skills that really lay out exactly what it looks like to be self-directed in ways that like help me as an adult. <laughs> I know these are designed for middle school kids, but I'm like, oh, that's how I get started. Well, and it helps give you language to talk about it, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I find all of those examples were terrific, yeah. I will definitely put some of those in the transcript, folks, so you can see them in action um, and put the page numbers so you can find them in the book as well, because I'm not finding them right now. Um, great. So you do write this book. It's really written for teachers. But I feel like it also has relevance to systems level leaders. And I'm wondering about how you see it being used for systems change. Well, that's a great question. Our hope is that it will inform both, you know, sort of that daily practice in the classroom, in and out of the classroom. We hope out a lot. Um, but it also has implications for, for systems, both at the school and, and the district level, supervisory union level. Um, I think. I think one of the pieces that um, I hope people find helpful is this idea of um, some guiding questions. It gets back to the why are we doing it sort of idea, but it gets, a, it gets even more sort of pragmatic. I think on page 75, um, we offer some guiding questions for um, PLP design teams. And I think it depends on where that design is happening, but I know a lot of schools are doing that at the school or district level. Um, so we pose qu uh, questions for folks to think about in terms of their purpose and their audience and how those two things need to drive the content and the form, and then how really explicit conversations need to be um, had about roles and responsibilities in relation to all of those things. So when we asked teachers before we wrote the book, what would you like to see in a book about personalized learning and in particular PLPs, they asked questions like, what's the purpose? Who's the audience? Uh, what should go in it? What are the required contents? Um, will all classes contribute to the PLP? Uh, what you know? What platform will we use? Um, and we quickly realized that it it would be a very short book because if we answered those questions, because it would basically be it depends, <laughs> and it depends on um, how your classroom, team, school, district, supervisor union, whatever your unit is. Um, asks and answers those questions, doesn't it? So those are precisely the questions to be asked, and they do inform systemic change, um, and it needs to be uh, collaborative, um, the conversation. And so, so, we, so my hope is that by offering some of that, we can inform infrastructure in a way that helps people find a path toward um, coming up with some common language and a common vision. 
I've been thinking a lot about how one of the things that gets in our way as we try to reform schools or think differently about schools is a failure of imagination, right? And so it's hard to imagine school different than how you went to school. And it seems to me that this book provides, um, fills the gap that, that is left by a lack of imagination in helping not just teachers see how it could look different, but because I think teachers know how it could look differently, but administrators and school board members and other stakeholders for whom they might say, yeah, we want personalized learning, but then walk in the classroom and expect the classroom to look the same. And so I love this vignette, and I'm not gonna remember the teacher's name or even the student's name, but I love this one vignette where the principal walks into the classroom and can't see the teacher and he looks around <laughs> and the kids are all doing different things. Mm -hmm. And there's this moment in the vignette where the principal thinks, well, I know the teacher's in here somewhere. And then finally <laughs> spots the teacher like sitting on the floor in the corner working with one student. Mm -hmm. um, and so it reminds me uh, that as somebody who likes order, that when I'm in a classroom that's really personalized, I always have to take a deep breath and think, Okay, learning, look around. What's really happening? Yes, it's noisy. It feels a little chaotic, but what's really happening? Everyone's actually on task and doing something. I'm the only one that's uncomfortable. Mm. And I think administrators have to, they have to figure that out. Yeah, they're, then they're not the only ones who have to figure it out, but they absolutely do. In fact, when we were speaking earlier about roles and dispositions, and I said sometimes you have to be a little comfortable with chaos, you know, usually it's not chaos. It just looks like chaos because um, it's not f form and order and things that we come to associate with what learning should look like, you know, quiet compliance as opposed to active learning. Um, so I, I agree. I also, um, I appreciate that you sort of picked up on it's the, the book's ability to convey um, what, it, what could be that idea of imagination because that certainly was a goal and in fact it, it hit home for me a few months ago when our state legislature was um, grappling with some pushback on proficiency-based assessment and the proficiency-based graduation requirements. This um, Maine as a state had those and those were um, they were moved from mandated to optional and sort of um, at that same time, Vermont started to look at its, at sort of there was some pushback. And so the House Ed Committee invited me to come in and testify on those. And what I quickly realized as we were having a conversation in that space is that so many people just couldn't see it, right? It is, it's that gap between our own experience in our education and what's happening in today's world and that we needed more examples and stories of what it looks like and what it can be. Uh, so it is. I appreciate your putting it into um, into the words around a failure of imagination, um, or you know maybe the the bright spark of imagination, um, because I am hopeful that it'll do that. And my understanding of Maine is that um, one of the findings is that while the graduation requirements changed in places where classroom instructional practice didn't change things didn't work out so well. And so what this book does for me is it really demonstrates how classroom practice changes, how the mechanics of what happens for learners in the classroom is, is vastly different than a stand and deliver teaching method. And I think it builds on this notion that the three pillars need to be enacted together, yeah. as opposed to really highlighting, well, if we all, 
if we only do proficiency-based assessment, then yeah, we are going to see pushback because nothing else is changing, right? So do you imagine that this book could play um, a part of Vermont education policy? Do you think that the legislature could, um, that this book could foster conversations that would help the legislature as they navigate Vermont education policy? Uh, I absolutely do. I think that if I had had it, if it had been published um, back when I was testifying, it would have been a really useful thing actually to give to House members because um, it does convey not only um, it not only imagines what's possible, but it also shows what's happening in Vermont schools right now. And I think that's one of the things that's most exciting to me is that it is the stories of real kids and real educators working really hard on this work and um, doing inspiring and doing inspiring work. And so how do you see it as a part of a more national conversation? Well, uh, right now, if you were to examine the um, Every Student Succeeds Act educational plans, which every state had to file, 39 of them reference personalized learning uh, in some way as a priority in the vision, um, so to some extent. So it's very much part of the national conversation right now. Uh, and accompanying that is this focus on competency-based or what we call what we call proficiency-based here in Vermont um, assessment as well. So it's very much part of that national conversation. My colleagues and I here um, at, at the University of Vermont and at the Tarrant Institute um, certainly do a lot of national presentations and we write for a national and international audience and so I know that we are informing those, um, those, those venues um, and I know that a lot of people in the U.S. are looking at Vermont right now. Um, we have one of the most comprehensive policies in place for personalized learning, and so we're kind of on, on the national stage. And with Maine having sort of folded back on their uh, proficiency-based graduation requirements, um, people are looking at Vermont to see what's going to happen next. And so I'm really hopeful that these stories will, will, will tell, um, will show what's possible. Yeah, I hope so too. <laughs> um, have you gotten some, any feedback on the book from educational leaders or practitioners yet? We have. Actually, I'm delighted to say that we've gotten some really great feedback. It seems to be being received well, um, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm optimistic about that. We've had a number of folks shoot us emails to say, wow, it's really great, thanks so much, this is helpful, I'm going to use it in this way, I'm going to use it as a, as a whole school read next year for our faculty, I'm having folks use it in this way. So we've definitely gotten some, some nice reviews and some emails, so thanks for asking about that. Yeah. I, I do wish I had a time machine and that we could shoot this back, book back to when I started my job here at the Tarrant Institute. <laughs> Certainly would have been helpful for me. <laughs> um, it also feels like really uh, personal um, because it celebrates Vermont schools, and you've referenced that many times, but it feels like a real celebration of teaching and learning in Vermont. Um, I, as I read through the book, um, I just delighted in the number of teachers who get a shout out um, for their hard work, the number of students featured, um, the presence of both student and teacher voices. Do you have any messages for the Vermont education community? Yeah, a few, I guess. One is just that um, they, there are a lot of shout outs and I, there are so many more shout outs we could have given. So that's sort of a hard thing, right? Is that 
um, there's a page limit. <laughs> they won't, turns out they won't let you publish a thousand page book. And we have thousands of pages worth of great stories in Vermont to tell. Uh, but we do have a, a website that goes along with the book that we don't have a page limit to. And so we are really updating um, with uh, more and more examples of this work. And then of course we have the Tarrant Institute blog which celebrates educator and student work daily. So, um, so I just wanna give a shout out to that because that is such a celebration um, and that it would have been great to be able to include more in it. Um, I also would like to say that we um, sent a copy of the book to all schools that have um, grades five through eight or students sort of ages 10 to 14 or 15 across the state. So there's a, if, if you're listening to this, there's a really good chance that there's a copy kicking around your, your school right now. So ask your principal about it. Um, and I guess the, the final message I would want to say is that, um, as you know, Jeannie, we do, we do present nationally a fair amount. And so we talk a lot with educators from other states. And inevitably, when I come back to Vermont after having gone to national conferences, I come back with a renewed appreciation for the depth of um, care and um, sensitivity and uh, dedication that our educators have for, for this work and for our youth. Um, we are so fortunate to be in Vermont, and Vermont educators are doing incredible work. Um, and so I just feel really lucky to be here. And that's sometimes I think people don't always get a chance to leave and then come back to appreciate anew um, what a great education system we have here. And so I just kind of wanted to, to name that. Yeah. Well, I just want to name that the book feels um, much like when we talked about uh, the reciprocity between the teacher roles and the student roles. This book feels like a gift of reciprocity. It feels like... Um, you all and we all as the Tarrant Institute learn so much from our partners um, in Vermont schools, from the partner educators we work with, from the students at those schools, um, uh, from the conversations we get to have with um, Vermont teachers and educators across the state. And you wove that learning and created something new out of it that teachers can then learn from. And so there's something about that um, the way that you synthesize all those experiences into this rich work that everybody can learn something new from that I just have deep appreciation for. And yet you still are constantly giving shout outs to all these great um, schools and teachers and students. Well, hopefully it shows a, a, a bit of the enormous gratitude we feel toward, uh, toward educators and students because they've given us a ton. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Um, Penny about um, personalized learning in the middle grades? Well, I'd just like to thank you for, for inviting me to talk with you today. I really have enjoyed it. It's a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Penny Bishop. <laughs>
This podcast is a project of the Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education at the University of Vermont. Hi, Audrey. I'm back. I'm inside my coat closet in um, with all the shoes and the coats. It has kind of a tall ceiling, so I don't know. We'll see. Here we go with test case two. Hello, I'm Jeannie Phillips, and welcome back to Vermont Ed Reads. We're kicking off our second season of the podcast.